in particular praying for 10,000 homes in our community and doing so by name. And over the last couple of weeks as we have begun looking at this, just been reminded from Scripture that God calls us to pray because He is sovereign, because He is working out His plans, and because God has ordained prayer to change the course of history and to be the means that God uses to bring His kingdom into our present reality. Well, let's pray as we begin our time here together today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would speak to us through your word. And Father, that you would hear our prayers, and that you would change our hearts. And Lord, that you would change this community for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. There is a reason why you are here. Not just simply a reason why you are here today, but there is a reason why you are here and why you are still alive. And for those of you here who are Christians, and I know not everyone here is, but for those of you here who are Christians, that God did not save you. He did not bring you into a relationship with himself and then instantly take you out of this place and transport you to heaven. But he has you here, and he has you here at this time, and he has you here in this place. And the reason why he has you here is not for the advancement of your own personal success. It's not for the attainment of your own version of the American dream. It is not so that you can get to a secure retirement that is peaceful and quiet and stable. It is not so that your progeny are well off in life. But you are here, according to the Bible, to advance God's kingdom and to participate in what he is doing here in this community and to the ends of the earth. This past month, we as a church have committed ourselves to a frontal assault on the devil's workings in this world. And we are doing so in a way that seems to some to be soft. It seems to others to be powerless. It seems to others to be ineffective. But it is the very means that God has ordained to usher in his kingdom into this world. Is that we have committed ourselves to praying for this community. Here this morning as we look at some of the specific ways and specific passion that God has for those in this world who do not know him. What we're going to be looking at this morning is we're going to examine the connection between God's passion our purpose, and our prayers. We'll be looking at a couple different passages of Scripture this morning, but to begin with in examining our purpose, we're going to return to Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 7 through 11, which we looked at a couple weeks ago when Hugh Welch was here speaking about reweaving Shalom. And if you recall that he spoke about, or just to give some context to this, is that this passage in Jeremiah chapter 29 is given to the people of God who have just been taken into captivity. Is that they as a people have been wandering away from the Lord for many years. God had been merciful, calling them back to himself again and again. And finally, God's judgment came upon them. And when his judgment came upon them, it came in the form of the Babylonians who came into Israel and conquered it, who burned their houses, who raped and pillaged their communities who killed their children, and then they took everybody, particularly the brightest and the smartest, and they stuck hooks through their noses and led them in a line off to Babylon. And it is there 
as they are in exile, as they have just gone through this complete and total atrocity, that God gives them this passage of Scripture that we know so well, where God says, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans for prosperity, plans not to harm you, but for wealth in the future. And just before that well-known verse, God says this to the people of Israel, as they are wondering, why am I here? And how long are we going to be here? God gives them this command through Jeremiah. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. A couple weeks ago when we were examining this passage, we saw this command that God has given to the people of God. A restatement of his command that he gave to mankind in Genesis, in the opening chapters of Genesis. And here God is calling his people, as Hugh Welchel stated, to be to the purpose of reweaving shalom, of reweaving the welfare of the society, to promoting the flourishing of that community. And he commands them to build houses and to have gardens, that is, to settle down, to be productive, to marry and to have families, and to be engaged in parenting, and to seek your children to get married, and to raise up a family. And he calls them, he says, seek the welfare of the city. That word there for welfare, as we've discussed before, is the word for shalom, which means peace and harmony, flourishing between man and the relationship with God, flourishing between man and the relationship with others and with society and with the created order, that life is growing and flourishing and prospering. Indeed, the definition of shalom that Hugh gave us a couple weeks ago was this. Shalom, welfare, is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be, the full flourishing of human life in all aspects as God intended it to be. And while Hugh is here, he examined in particular how your, this is your purpose, this is our purpose, and how your life and your work and what you do when you're not in church here on Sunday mornings is to participate in the reweaving of shalom and the reconciliation of the whole created order, which is made possible and achieved through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that our purpose is to seek this shalom in our community and to the ends of the earth. Well, what I want to examine here this morning is the second, and indeed quite possibly, the principal way that God calls his people to seek the shalom of their city. And the way he does it is this. He says, verse 7, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. 
for in its welfare you will find your welfare. It's a startling statement because do you know what the Jews would have wanted for Babylon where they found themselves? They would have wanted the destruction of that place. They would have wanted the destruction of the godless culture that they were in. How often they must have awoken every day and seen pagan temples and idols around them. People not living by God's standards and looking around and just looking at them and saying, what has happened? Where are we? How do we get into this condition? When is God going to destroy this place? When is God going to come back and extradite us, his people, out of this place and destroy this city? What they wanted is they wanted themselves to prosper and everyone else to fail. They wanted it to be declared and known that we are the winners and you are the losers. But that's not what God says to them. He says, pray to the Lord for it. Why? Because God has ordained the prayers of his people to be the instrument that God uses to bring about the welfare of this community. He says, pray to the Lord for it. Intercede on its behalf. Intervene. Plead its case. Petition for the well-being of this community. And it is true for them and it is true for us today is that God wants us to pray to him for the shalom of this place so that through our prayers it will bring about the shalom of this place. Do you see how that works? is that God wants us to pray to him for the shalom of the place because the very means of us praying for him, these things, is God using those things to actually bring that into fruition. But our purpose that God has given to us and our prayers get thwarted by misplaced passions. This is the second thing that we're looking at this morning is how our purpose and prayers get thwarted by our misplaced passions. There is a conflict that arises between God's passion, our purpose, and our prayers that gets distorted by misplaced passions. And to see this clearly, we're going to go to the 8th century B.C. to examine the life of the prophet Jonah. If you recall, for those of you that are familiar with him, Jonah was a prophet of the Lord. He was living in Israel at the time, right here. And God told Jonah that he was to go to Nineveh because God is passionate about the nations being reconciled to himself. So Jonah is supposed to go up here to the city of Nineveh uh, at the borderline of Syria and modern-day Iraq in terms of where he was supposed to go. But Jonah didn't want to go there. So he didn't want to go there. He didn't want God to be merciful on these people. He didn't want to share God's message. He didn't want God's mercy to be poured out in that place. And so Jonah as, gets in the boat and he goes, his goal is to get to Tarshish. He's supposed to go here and he's trying to get over here. Far, far away. But what happens is Jonah sets out. There's a giant storm at sea. He gets thrown overboard um, He gets thrown overboard. The great fish swallows him. Jonah comes back. The fish takes him up and barfs him up on shore. And after he gets barfed up on shore, God says to Jonah, Jonah, it's time for you to go to Nineveh. Jonah still does not want to go to Nineveh, but instead he decides it's better than being covered with fish barf. So he heads off to the city of Nineveh. And as he goes off to Nineveh, he goes there to declare God's judgment against the city. And when he does this, a remarkable thing happens. Is that the leaders of Nineveh and the people of Nineveh repent. And they cry out for mercy. And God delivers that city. 
And he delivers the judgment that was about to come upon them. And Jonah becomes angry that God would do this. He becomes angry at God's mercy to a people who are not his own people. And so Jonah, so God seeks to give Jonah an object lesson about the misplaced passions in his life. So we enter in, in the end book of Jonah in Jonah chapter 4. The people have repented. Jonah is sitting outside of the city waiting for God's destruction to come upon it. And he is mad that it's not coming. And God comes to Jonah and he says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city. And he sat to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and he said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And so Jonah sits there in the scorching sun. And as he is sitting there, God is confronting him and giving this object lesson to him about his misplaced passions because there is a stark contrast that is being portrayed in this passage. A contrast between God's compassion, his pity, his mercy for the city of Nineveh and Jonah's pity. That Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, is on its way to death and judgment, and Jonah is happy about that. And yet God has compassion on the city of Nineveh, and Nineveh lives, and Jonah is angry about it. But then this plant comes to life, and Jonah is happy to have a plant. And then the plant dies. Jonah probably gets heat stroke, sunstroke. Jonah has great compassion on this plant, and he is so upset about this death of this plant that he says, I, I am so angry, I do good to be angry. In fact, I am angry enough to die. Now, in the whole book of Jonah, something startling has happened because this is the first time that you see Jonah finally expressing any concern over something perishing. But what is it? His passion and concern is over the death of a plant. And not over the 120,000 people in Nineveh who would be perishing, but the grace of God intervening. Could it be the same of us? Of a misplaced passion when it comes to God's purpose in this world? Could it be the same of me? There is a child who is involved in our family's life um, who is not a good influence and who does not go to this church, just in case you're wondering, um, who is not a good influence, and in my better, more sanctified moments, I, I just want to throttle him and just grab the kid and be done with him. And that's when things are going well. <laughs> and truthfully, there is very little compassion in my heart for this individual. 
And the number one thing that I want is that I want him out of our lives because of the challenges that he has created. And yet daily, I find myself having more, con- more concern, having more passion, having more pity over the plants in my garden, over what happens to the decorations in my home. I have more concern and anger and compassion and frustration over my carpet getting soiled and the contents of my garage getting displaced than I do about this child. And at other times about my fellow man or the spread of the gospel. And so it is that Jonah, who is in the midst of this object lesson, that God turns to him and confronts him and says, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which it came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And here is Jonah who pities the plant, who, yet he did not create it or sustain it. And God is saying to him, Jonah, you have so much concern about these other things in your life. You have so much concern about these things. Should I not have pity and compassion for the city of Nineveh, a city that I have created, a city that I, God, am continuing to sustain? sustain? Should I not have passion and concern for that great city? God says it three times. He calls Nineveh that great city. Should I not have pity on that great city? Was it an evil city? Yes, it was an evil city, but it was an important city to God. And God has compassion even on the evil and on the wicked. And God is saying, should I not have compassion on the 120,000 people in the city of Nineveh? A population roughly the same size as St. Mary's County. He's saying, Jonah, consider how many people would perish. Don't you have any passion about that? 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left. That is, they are morally unaware. They are ignorant of God. They don't know which way to go. It has never been given to them. And God says to Jonah, Jonah, look at your misplaced passions. Look at my purpose in this world. And look at your misplaced passions. You pity the plant, but you did not make it grow. You exerted no labor in tending it. It is here in a day. It is gone in tomorrow. Jonah, if you feel so much concern for this plant, what about the immortal souls of the 120,000 people in the city of Nineveh who are created in my image, who are sustained in this life, in life to this day by my grace and mercies, whose eternal destinies will be forever fixed by the decisions they make in this life? Jonah, if you care so much about this plant, should I not care about this city? And God cares about it. Because unlike Jonah, who sat upon a hillside overlooking a city and casting judgment and condemnation upon it, God God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, into the evilness and into the wickedness of this world, not to condemn it, but to redeem it. And he too, Jesus, climbed up on a hill outside a city not to cast judgment upon himself, 
not to cast judgment upon the city, but to have the judgment cast upon itself so that it might be spared and that we might be spared. That Jesus was nailed and crucified on a cross so that the just judgment due to us for the wrongs that we have done for breaking God's law, that that might be spared and that we might have life and life abundant for all eternity. Should I not have compassion on this place? Was it just Jonah? We see the Lord's passion and compassion in Jesus himself. In his final week as he was entering into Jerusalem, about to go in where he was about to be brought up on a hill and judgment poured out upon him. As he is approaching the city, Luke 19 records this, Jesus' experience as he crests a hill and he overlooks the city of Jerusalem. And he says that, Luke writes this, And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had you known on this day the things that make for peace, namely a relationship with Jesus Christ who is coming into this city, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And when Jesus knew and saw the judgment that was coming before him and the people in this city who were perishing, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it and wept over the people who were in there and wept over the people in this world who do not know the peace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. And Jesus wept over them because he knew the stark reality that was coming. It is a stark reality that somehow in my life, the vitality of my garden distracts me from this stark reality. Let me give you just quickly three different pictures of the same reality is that there's a struggle within each one of us, and the reality is that each one of us are sinners, that we have done things and said things and thought things that we ought not to have done, said, or thought. And the reality of sin in our lives and in this world is that it brings brokenness into our lives, is that sin disintegrates things. It tears them apart, and it rips them apart. And those that are not being put back together through Jesus Christ will go on disintegrating, being increasingly fragmented for all of eternity. There is a brokenness that will continue for them. Secondly, a different picture is that, yes, God is God. He is the judge of the universe. He is the one who put the planets into motion. He is the one who set the course of this world. He is the one who has given us his law about life. And Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death, that the just penalty due for us, for us breaking God's perfect law, is our death, that every one of us stands as people who are guilty before God and deserve to be punished because of breaking God's law. And why does God do that? Because it is unjust and it is unloving to not punish wrongdoing. Now, if you're here and that sounds harsh to you, if you think the idea of a God who brings about judgment is harsh or unloving, I would challenge you to question that assumption. Because are you really willing to tell a victim of rape Are you really willing to tell victims of what ISIS is doing in the Middle East? Are you really willing to tell a victim of abuse 
that there is no justice for them, that there is no consequence for their perpetrator, that is unjust and it is unloving for there not to be justice in this world. And the God that we serve is a God who is just and he is also the God of love. And it's a reality for each one of us to face this. And not only that, but the third thing is, is that there are people in this world, people in our lives, people that you drove past on your way out of your neighborhood today who want to be God in their life. People who want to be God, who will submit to no one but themselves, who want nothing to do with, who want nothing to do with God, and who are about to get what they want. An eternity apart from God. An eternity apart from everything that God is, from life. An eternity apart from love and peace and goodness. An eternity in the absence of God and all that he is. But God sent Jesus Christ that these things might not be. That he died on the cross and was resurrected to new life so that our sins would be forgiven, so that our guilt and shame would be removed, so that the brokenness in our life would begin to be put back together, so our lives would be reoriented the way that it was meant to be around God, and we would find purpose and meaning and fulfillment and joy and peace in our life. And it comes through knowing him. And for those of you who are here this morning who are not Christians, and you hear what I've said here this morning and you don't like it, and you say, you know what, I don't, I don't believe it. There are big questions in life and there are little questions in life. And this is one of the big questions. And it's a big question that I believe that you should have an answer to or at least an answer that you are confident of. And I would be delighted to meet with you and to discuss this with you and to work through your questions and answers. And quite frankly, you may be sitting here thinking, going, shoot, I'm not going to meet with that guy. But really, I'm, I'm a nice guy. I do believe that honest questions deserve honest answers, and if Christianity is true, it should be able to have them. And if I don't have answers for you, I'll just quite simply tell you I don't have those answers. But I would love to help you work through the big questions in this life. And for the rest of us who are gathered here, this, these passages, Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, God's frustration and anger at Jonah over Nineveh, Jeremiah's call to the people of God to pray for the city for its welfare, it gives us this correction. The correction that God gave to Jonah. Jonah, should not you too care about this city? Jonah, if you are so concerned about these insignificant things in your life, if you are angry enough to die because of, the plant, of this plant, should you not be compassionate enough to live for these people? Should not you have compassion? Jonah, should you not be more concerned about the people who might perish than your plants and your possessions and your achievements which will perish? Should not you who know that I am a gracious and merciful and loving God, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, a God who relents from disaster, shouldn't you who know and who have experienced my mercy and grace, should not you show that same mercy and grace to others? Shouldn't you who have experienced the unmerited and undeserved grace of God seek for others who also don't deserve it to know and experience the undeserved and unmerited grace of God? Should not I have compassion? Should not you have compassion? It was Jeremiah's point to the people 
to the exiles in Babylon. He says, seek the welfare of the city into which I have called you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for as it prospers, so too you will prosper. And very simply, I am asking you to join me in this month to do something that seems to some to be ineffective. And it may seem ineffective to you. I am asking you to join with me in doing something that may seem like you are not doing anything at all. It may seem like there are more important things for you to do in your life. But I am asking you to join with me in doing the very thing that Jesus instructs us will bring about the fullness of his kingdom in this place. It is to pray for this city. In particular, what we're striving to do here is to pray for 10,000 homes by name in our own community. If you haven't signed up yet as a prayer volunteer, please do so, www.prayforeveryhome.com. Click sign up and join in with what's going on there. And the goal is is that if we get 100 people to pray for five homes a day for 20 days, that will equal to be 10,000 homes prayed for here in this community by name. Now, last week I showed you the picture. This is what last week looked like of starting off on this initiative of people who volunteered to be prayer, um, prayer warriors in our community and praying for those in our community. And so far, we've gotten 61 people to sign up from Cornerstone to pray for our community and to pray for our neighbors. And what you see there is um, the red area means that less than 25% of the homes in that neighborhood in that region have been adopted. And the blue area means that um, over 25 to 50% of the homes in that community have been adopted as people have committed to pray for the homes in that area. Um, These are the 61 volunteers from Cornerstone who've agreed to, who've committed to doing so, and I'd urge you to join us with this. Um, The green dots are the homes that are actively praying. If you're wondering what the red dot is, that means that's the home that signed up but hasn't started praying yet. And if you take, if I take my mouse and I click on that dot, like the little name of who that is in our church actually (laughs) pops. That's true, but I'm not going to do that. And where have we been? But the goal here is for us as a church and community to be praying for our neighborhood, to do what God calls us to do, to pray for the welfare of this community, that our hearts will be moved with compassion as God's heart is moved for compassion for those that don't know their right hand from their left. And so far at Cornerstone, we've had, we've had 61 people sign up to commit to being prayer volunteers. That means we've, had over, we've got 6,100 homes adopted. That's a net of 5,000 homes being, 5,000 different homes being adopted. And as we started this this past week, we've had um, 740 homes prayed for and 697 homes prayed for. So what does that mean? Well, one, we need you to go to prayforeveryhome.com and sign up and register as a volunteer. What should happen as you do that is not only do you register, but each day um, you can get a printout of your neighbor's names. You'll also get a, you should get a daily email. I heard there were some issues with this. If you don't get a daily email, please let me know and I will follow up with them. But of a prayer for the next five homes on your list, and they will pray for you to pray for them. And for you not to become the red dot, um, what I need you to do then is to check off that you prayed for them. And so you can do that on your email by clicking on the link, and that'll highlight them. You can log back in, and you can actually physically click them, and that'll do that. Also, if you want to, um, this is... 
um, you can actually enter in specific prayer requests for things in your community and other prayer volunteers who are not a part of a church, which there's about six in Southern Maryland who are using this, um, they can also see those prayer requests for specific neighbors and join with them and join with you in praying for neighbors in your community. Um, And so, but what are we asking you to do? Is that you would join us in praying for Southern Maryland. That you would pray for God's kingdom to come for God's will to be done, for God's plan to be advanced in this community, for those that don't know him to be reconciled to God, and for this community to experience the peace that surpasses understanding that only comes through relationship with Jesus Christ. Should I not have compassion on this city? Should not we as well? Let us commit ourselves to prayer. Let us actually do that right now and spend some time praying for our church and praying for our community. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, in examining your scriptures, Lord, we just confess to you the insignificant stresses in our lives. Lord, the things that we get so worked up about, that we get so angry about, that are here today and will be gone tomorrow. And Father, we confess to you our own hearts and how quickly we get wound up over insignificant things and don't care at all for the people that we drove past on the way to church this morning. How we do not care at all for the nine out of ten people who line up to go through the gates of the base that do not know you as their Lord and Savior. And yet that is irrelevant to us. Father, we pray that you would break our hearts Father, that you would move us to pray to you for the welfare of this community. That this community would be reconciled to you. Lord, we do pray on behalf of this community, interceding forward and intervening on its behalf, that you would cause this community to flourish through your grace and through the power of your Spirit. Father, we pray for Southern Maryland, that your name would be glorified, that people would be reconciled to you, that brokenness would be healed, that sins would be forgiven, that guilt and shame would be covered, that righteousness and dignity would be bestowed, that the self-centeredness of our lives would be replaced with a life-giving, joy-filling God-centeredness that comes through Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that here in Southern Maryland that you, by your Spirit, would tap into the deep hunger of each soul and bring healing and renewal throughout this community, through your people, and draw them to yourself in Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that your Spirit would move your people to pray, that you would hear our prayers, and that through them your kingdom would come, that our prayers would cause your will to be done. Father, may we be blessed by those who don't know you, that they may know you. Father, may the joy of the gospel fill the hearts of believers. Father, may the joy of the gospel fill the hearts of cynics and doubters and the hurting and the close-minded, and those who simply do not believe that you are true or that your word is real. Lord, we pray on behalf of this community that you would do something so beautiful in this place that all who witness it 
can only describe it by the name of Jesus. And it is the powerful name of Jesus that we who are powerless pray to you. Amen. What a blessing it is to have the Lord's message to us, brought to us through the faithful teaching of his word. May his message now continue in song. May we rise and sing to him his word to us.